Relationships mean everything. When you're speaking of our own relationship to Christ or our relationships with one another as Christians, relationships themselves mean everything. There is significant truth to the oft-repeated concept that only the Word of God and the souls of men and women are what will last from this earth to and throughout all eternity. I am the most extraordinary beneficiary of marvelous multiple relationships in this life, both here in my ministry in Little Rock as well as wonderful relationships with so many other people around the country and even brothers and sisters in countries around our world. I believe that one of the greatest blessings in this life is the many relationships which the Lord grants to us as fellow believers in Jesus, relationships in and for which we rejoice exceedingly. This was brought home to me again in a powerful way this week as I attended the Grace Community Church Shepherds Conference in Southern California. I have so many brothers in Christ who are such a great blessing to me that I was able to see while I was there. And while I was traveling on the plane to the Shepherds Conference, I also read a book which contains the reflections of Dr. D.A. Carson, Don Carson, who's been in our pulpit and ministered to us a couple of different times regarding his father, Tom, who was a pastor in Canada during the latter half of the 20th century. The title of the book reflects the struggle Don Carson's father had in ministering to the heavily Roman Catholic populated area of Quebec, Canada during and the period including the 1940s through the 1980s, the title being Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. The book is brand new, was sent to me this week, and as I read it, I couldn't help but think about relationships. Because during the time of Don Carson, or excuse me, Tom Carson's ministry in French-speaking Canada, there were very few conversions to Christ, very few. And yet he faithfully ministered there in relative obscurity. One of the things that stood out to me from these memoirs was the value that Tom Carson himself placed on relationships. Listen as his son Don speaks of the last portion of his dad's life and ministry after some 50 years of ministering to those around him within the context of these committed relationships. Don Carson writes, Many entries in the journal, that is the journal of his father, are long and discursive. His notes on his visits, that is counseling visits, now often include not simply the purpose of a visit, but a fairly detailed summary of what took place, especially if he learned some story of the grace of God in a person's life. A lot of time is spent not only with those who are just beginning to walk 
the Christian way, but with those who are heading toward vocational ministry. And then after his father's death and during his funeral in 1992, Don Carson writes, The quiet testimonials seemed unending. One young woman who was an attaché at one of the African embassies said that not long before, she had been in intensive care for over a month with postpartum complications. She was in a comatose or semi-comatose state, unable to communicate. She said that Mr. Carson had come in every day, sat with her, read Scripture to her, and prayed with her. Another couple spoke with both Joyce, Don Carson's sister, and Don. They had been having severe marriage problems and were on the brink of divorce. For two years, they say, Mr. Carson visited them every week and took them through a Bible study on what a godly home and marriage look like. With tears in their eyes, they expressed profound thankfulness for His godly investment in their lives. Some of these visits are briefly alluded to in his journals, but one would never guess from the entries what had gone on. Why should such matters be reported? Tom was simply serving as an ordinary pastor. What you see there, as I alluded to and as I read the book, was as I said, the value that Tom Carson placed on relationships. He filled his time on earth concentrating upon the various relationships with people around him. Whether you're a pastor or not, relationships should mean everything to you also. Relationships meant a great deal to the Apostle Paul too. And he knew of these commitments to relationships, and he knew them very well. He knew how these relationships were and how much he himself needed those relationships to be able to minister the gospel so effectively. Listen to Tom Schreiner as he reflects upon these greetings in Romans 16 that Paul gives and the importance that Paul places on the significance of these various relationships as he gives these greetings. Tom Schreiner writes, Greetings express the love that was the mark of the early Christian community. Note that the many people saluted are co-workers in Christ Jesus, or in Christ, beloved in the Lord, those who labor in the Lord, or who are elect in the Lord. The greetings express the solidarity and affection between those who belong to the Lord. Referring to these greetings, he says, They are not merely secular hellos, but are rooted in the new life of Christ. Moreover, the Christian gospel was not a cause or ideology that trampled over the personhood of individuals. The very core of the gospel, listen to what he says, the very core of the gospel is love for others. And Paul expresses that love through his greetings. As Paul comes now to the close of the greatest letter ever written, 
He does so by acknowledging the various love relationships that he had with certain believers. And if you remember, the last time we met, I spoke to you of Paul's thankfulness here in chapter 16 with someone named Phoebe, who is listed in verses 1 and 2. She might very well have been the person, as I said last time, to whom Paul entrusted with bringing this very letter to the church at Rome so that it might be read aloud. And that would have been, of course, an incredible honor. She was a faithful Christian, and Paul wanted her to be received well by the believers in that great city. As I've told you before, Paul didn't found the church in Rome, but he did have the significant aspect of these love relationships in his mind because he knew virtually all of the people that he's referencing here in chapter 16, or at least he knew the reputation of some of them even if he didn't know them. I believe he knew most of them. And uh, certainly at the top of that list, and why it appears as though more ink is written about them, he speaks in verse 3 about Prisca and Aquila. You know them, of course, from the book of Acts as Priscilla and Aquila, just a different form of her name. Faithful followers of Christ and beloved co-workers with Paul. And because in this passage of greetings, they occupy the most ink, I want to spend all of our time this morning upon them because they encapsulate the longest greeting of any of those in Rome that Paul seeks to address. And so therefore I want to singularly address them this morning because I think there's a great deal that we can learn from verses 3 through the first part of verse 5 about them and also about relationships. Listen to Romans 16, verses 3 through 5a. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. I want you to see, if I can show you this, these strong relationships that Paul had with all of these people, but especially with Prisca and Aquila, a choice couple, and maybe for us even a model for the value of godly committed relationships with which we could share with one another. And Lord willing, after this morning's message We'll deal with these others to whom Paul just gives a name and an attribute or a name and a greeting of some kind. We'll be able to see the value that Paul places on these people and their love for him and his love for them. And then maybe after that we'll be able to come to the end of this great chapter and then this great book. Let me give you four principles this morning, four principles of Paul's relationship with Priscilla and Aquila, which I believe when seen could serve all of us in our relationships with one another. 
Four principles. Here's the first one. I call it the principle of shared ministry. The principle of shared ministry. Verse 3, the first part of it. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now, in order for us to know what kind of shared ministry Paul had with this couple, we need to know a little bit more about them because they're a fairly prominent couple to whom Paul refers and for whom he relies upon greatly in his ministry. Apparently, Paul met Prisca or Priscilla in Corinth, probably on his second missionary journey. I want you to look back in your Bibles at Acts chapter 18, and we're going to get a little bit more familiar with them as we turn to Acts chapter 18 and find out a little bit more about them. Luke says in Acts chapter 18 verse 1 about Paul, after this he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudia had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now that's some insight. That tells us, of course, that Priscilla and Aquila had come from Italy, no doubt Rome, and because Claudius, the emperor at the time, had banished the Jews from that Gentile region, they had to leave. And Priscilla and Aquila having left, apparently came to Corinth to live. And it says in verse 2, he went to see them, that is Paul, and apparently he'd heard about them. And verse 3 says, because he was of the same trade, some kind of a tent making or leather working, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so he stayed there. And in fact, the text goes on to say that Paul had stayed there apparently for over a year and a half. And maybe the implication of that is that he stayed there as a resident in their home. And of course, verse 4 says, as was Paul's custom, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word, which may imply that he left his tent making and was completely devoted to preaching the Word. And that may imply, of course, that Priscilla and Aquila were making enough in their own business to support Paul and probably receiving support from others. And Paul, of course, was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to a house of a man named Titius Justus, a a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And of course, that included the number Priscilla and Aquila, probably having been converted prior to this, opening their home to Paul, and being 
for Paul a haven so that he might live there. Verse 11, And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. This is uh, an amazing thing. And of course, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, Priscilla and Aquila had a house church in Corinth. They opened up their home, not only to Paul, but to house a number of other believers on the Lord's Day so that they could worship together. And as I said, Paul probably stayed there in their home for over a year and a half. And I think that shows us precisely why Paul could say, as you go back to Romans chapter 16, why he would call them my co-workers, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Sunergus, co-workers, fellow workers. A wonderful term that speaks of those who are committed with Paul to the ministry of the Word, to ministering alongside Him in whatever way they could help for the sake of the Gospel. And I guess we could ask the question, since they weren't necessarily ministers with a capital M themselves, in what sense are they Paul's fellow workers? And in what sense do they have a shared ministry? Lance, if you talk about a shared ministry, what kind of ministry would they have? Well, if you look back at Acts chapter 18, you're going to find out the kind of ministry that they had. Verse 18, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. They went along with Paul. They didn't just have a house church in their own home in Corinth and they didn't just try to house someone like Paul for a long period of time, he took them along with him. And at Sincrea he had his hair cut, for he was now under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And apparently he left them for such a time, even when he went on beyond them, that they started a house church even in Ephesus, according to 2 Timothy 4.19. Because Paul says, greet Priscilla and Aquila with the church that meets in their house. Amazing. No wonder he could call them fellow workers. No wonder he could rely upon them. Because everywhere they went, whether it was in Corinth or in Ephesus... Or now as he's greeting them in Rome, which implies, of course, that between Corinth and Ephesus, they had also gone to Rome, and he'll later say, greet the believers in their house as well, which means they started another house church in Rome. They were amazing, an amazing couple. And it seems to me that they provide a wonderful principle of shared ministry with the Apostle Paul And I can't think of another special designation like co-workers to speak of brethren in the gospel work who have helped not only countless thousands of ministers like Paul and those who would follow him on up to our own very day. Special people, special couples who love the Lord, special individuals who just want to be involved, just want to be a help, sacrificing their time, their money, their effort, just to be able to say, 
I'm with you. I'm with you in the gospel. I'm, I'm with you in the work. The principle of shared ministry. No one can do it alone, my friends. No one. This church cannot function simply with a pastoral staff. Can't do it. We have to have involvement with other workers. In fact, there is no reason to have any pastors if there aren't any workers, if there aren't any people. We have so many wonderful co-workers in this church. Of course, yes, it starts with those whom I need. I need my pastoral brethren, no question about it. I need my wife, a co-worker with me in the truth. I need administrative assistance, but oh, how I need you. I need other co-workers in the body. I was just thinking of this recently, and I even expressed my thankfulness to God for Steve and Camille Ostergren, because Steve has been involved in the ministry of taking those messages, even those that were preached back in the Breckenridge days, and laboriously taking those tapes, those cassette tapes. You remember cassette tapes, don't you? Taking those cassette tapes, taking the masters, and digitally re-recording them, I think probably as a one-to-one in the recording process, and then making those available on the website. Having almost all of the messages all the way back virtually to December of 1996 and going back even, I think, to when I began in August of 1996 as the days roll on. What a ministry. In fact, I just received a letter from someone who sent a gift and a letter saying, I don't know what I would do without listening to these messages regularly. Here's a small gift to say thank you. And that person lives many, many miles away. I mean, what a, what a wonderful co-worker in the truth. What a wonderful co-laborer in ministry. And that could be multiplied as an example hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over. I mean, if you think about Priscilla and Aquila as a godly couple brought to Christ in what way we don't exactly know, but who begin to be faithful, who are blooming right where they're planted, right in that area, right in Corinth after having been banished from Rome, setting up a house church, meeting Paul, opening their home to him for over a year and a half, working together with him in their business, no doubt supporting him with their own financial resources, with their own material possessions, and then going with him from that area of Corinth to Ephesus, starting another house church, probably also housing him when he was there as well, and then going on to Rome where they're originally from, setting up another house church, and then returning somehow to Ephesus. Boy, what a What an amazing couple. What a great illustration, a great principle of shared ministry. They weren't ordained. They weren't called like Paul. They weren't apostles. They were just faithful workers in the truth. Shared ministry partners, co-workers in the great cause. By the way, that particular phrase, co-workers, Paul uses it mainly to speak of those who are his close associates. Epaphroditus uses it in one place of Euodia and Syntyche, saying they're my co-workers, work with them. They've got some issues on unity that they need to work on. Talks about Epaphras. It's amazing that Paul would include Priscilla and Aquila in this technical term, really. 
Notice Acts chapter 18, verse 24. He says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This is amazing. Paulus was mighty in the Scripture. He was an eloquent man, but he had not yet learned of new covenant baptism, of the baptism of Jesus. He'd only heard of the baptism of John. It was almost as though he were in transition and he was an Old Testament saint ministering, as it were, mighty from the Old Testament Scriptures. And Aquila and Priscilla, having heard him because of the time they'd spent with Paul, having known, of course, through their own baptism and through the idea of the teaching of Paul to them in their house, in their house church, they realized Apollos needs to be instructed in the greater way. And they pulled him aside and they did that. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, Apollos, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. He got the message. He got the message. This is a, this is a wonderful portrait, really, of not only the the help of Priscilla and Aquila as workers in the Lord, as providing financial assistance, as providing material goods, but also by their own teaching ministry, their, their admonishing ministry. This is, this is an amazing couple. And sometime, probably after the emperor Claudia's death in 54 AD, they were allowed to come back to Rome. And as they come back to Rome, their home area, they set up a house church. And now Paul, because he didn't found this church, but knows of them and knows them very well, is going to write what he writes in Romans 16.3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. I guess I should ask the question, what about ourselves? Are we like these co-workers in Christ Jesus, Priscilla and Aquila? Is that our hearts, to be able to be shared ministers of the gospel? To be able to work with the team here at the Bible Church of Little Rock? To be able to, to reach out with your financial resources, your material goods, your teaching ministry, your admonishing, your coming alongside others, in whatever way it is, do you have a shared ministry with one another? That bespeaks love. That bespeaks relationships. When you're committed, when you're sharing in ministry with others, you get committed to them. You get to a place where you are involved in a love relationship. There's a dynamism there. There's a shared commitment. There's an interlocking arms. When the going gets tough and when you go into the trenches, do you have this ministry philosophy of shared 
relationships? Do you work with others in the great gospel cause? Would you be one of those with whom others could affirm as you're having a shared ministry relationship? There's a second principle here. I call it the principle of selfless sacrifice. Look at the first part of verse 4. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life. Amazing statement. I mean, it wasn't just that they provided their financial resources. It wasn't just that they had material riches. They apparently had enough wealth that they had homes in every one of these locations. And it wasn't just that they shared out of the abundance of what God had blessed them with. It was also that they, in their own persons, had risked their own necks for the life of Paul. You say, well, how was that? We don't know exactly. And it may not particularly mean a literal bearing of the neck. It may not have been that they risked their lives and the guillotine or the sword for the sake of Paul. It may mean that. It probably means that they simply did all that they did, risking their lives at least to some degree for the sake of the ministry of the gospel. Literally, we don't know. But certainly, spiritually, they risk their necks for Paul. The only thing that we might be able to conclude was back in Acts chapter 18, you know that they were together. He took them to Ephesus. And when they were in Ephesus, it could be that they might have helped Paul when the riot came along. Look at chapter 19, verse 21. Now, after these things, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Paul was getting into their business making, their money making. And he goes on to say, There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worshipped. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So Paul's in trouble. He's in deep trouble. And there's tremendous confusion. In fact, verse 34 says, 
when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Can you imagine after two hours of shouting like that? They were probably saying two hours later, Great is the Artemis of Ephesians! Paul goes through this tremendous struggle and they're wanting to get at him. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and notice that probably also included Priscilla and Aquila and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. We don't know for sure, but maybe Priscilla and Aquila were right in the midst of that. And maybe they were those who were trying to extricate Paul from his dilemma. And maybe they were right in that number for whom Paul encouraged. The crowd dispersed. Paul was set free from the riotous mob. And maybe they had something to do with that. And maybe that's what Paul's reflecting on when he says, And they risk their necks. For my life. This principle of selfless sacrifice. They obviously believed that their life wasn't as important as the gospel being proclaimed. What it must have meant, at least, at the very least, is that they spiritually risk their reputations and their livelihood in order to help Paul. I mean, they might have been even missionaries themselves because they kept moving to these other places. And as as I told you, 2 Timothy 4.19, by the time Paul writes that, they have a house church in Ephesus right here where this mob has been gathered. And I would say, if you're like Paul and you know this and you know about their commitment and they've spiritually risked themselves or maybe even literally so, you don't forget people like that. You don't forget people like that at all. You have those people in your heart forever. And you love and you support them in any way you can because you know the commitment that they've made. No wonder when he knows they're in Rome, he takes these verses and says more about them than anyone else. No wonder. No wonder he wants to highlight these people and tell the Romans why he loves them so much. They sacrificed themselves for him and for the sake of the gospel. What selfless sacrifice is this? What would be your response towards someone who you see in need? Doesn't have to be someone like the pastor of the church, doesn't have to be someone like a an apostle like Paul. Could just be the person sitting next to you. Would you be willing to lift your to risk your life, your reputation, your possessions, your time, your effort for the sake of those in need? Well, Priscilla and Aquila did. And apparently they had done it to such a degree that Paul was able, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to commend them by saying, They risk their lives for me. My soul, literally, my, my suke life there. They risk their necks for my soul, my life. What selfless sacrifice. Thirdly, third principle here. 
the principle of sincere thanksgiving, shared ministry, selfless sacrifice, sincere thanksgiving. Look at the latter part of verse 4. To whom, to whom, Priscilla and Aquila, not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. That's an amazing thing. Paul gives thanks, gives thanks, of course, because I've just shown you they risked their lives for him, but apparently it wasn't just for Paul that they had done so. They had also ministered to these churches. We know in Corinth, we know in Ephesus, now in Rome, they risked their lives for every one of the Gentile churches with whom they came in contact. And Paul says, all of the Gentile churches, all of them, Send their thanksgiving to God. I mean, this is, this is not just some mere hello to the people at the end of a book. This is not just some wave of the hand to say, oh, by the way, greet so-and-so for me. You know, there are even some scholars who believe that Romans 16 is an add-on to the book. That it really wasn't a part of the original? I don't think so in any, any way. This is vital. This is Paul telling them in chapter 1, I long to see you. I long to impart some spiritual gift to you so that we would be mutually encouraged by my faith and by yours. I long to come to you. I want to see you. God has prevented me from doing so. And now he comes at the end of this book and it says, at last, at last I'm coming. And I have the opportunity to greet those whom I know in the Lord. And I want to tell you that this is who they are in your midst. And here's a choice couple. Here's Phoebe at the top of the list who I'm sending with the letter. And here's Priscilla and Aquila, this great couple who who have risked their lives for the sake of the gospel And not just for my life, but for yours as well. And you ought to be so sincerely thankful to them. You see, that's that's a principle of relationships. That you thank God for the people who are in mutual ministry with you. Not just husband, wife. Not just parents to children. Not even just in the body of Christ in a local place but thanking God, sincerely thanking God for all of the churches that are doing a great work for God. Sincere thanksgiving. Is that your heart? Do you express thanksgiving to those around you? Do you labor to say thanks to those who risk themselves for you? It may not be literal. It may not be that someone has chosen to lay down their life for you, which of course is the ultimate sacrifice. But the work that they do for you, an encouraging card, a note, the giving of funds when you are in need, reaching out in multiplicity of ways so that you can be taken care of in the body. You remember when Don Whitney was here last and he said, the church, it can be the most ugly place on earth when things don't go well and when people aren't being ministered to effectively. But oh, when it's working and when it's working well, it's the greatest place on earth. Nobody can take care of you like the church. Nobody can minister to you like, like people in the body. And when they do, 
Do you express your sincere thanks to them? Someone said to me recently regarding the death of one of their their people who actually wasn't even a part of our church. And we attempted to come alongside the family of the person who wasn't even a part of our church because the people who are part of our church are a part of our church. And when they hurt, we hurt too. And that person gave me a big hug at the funeral service and said to me, I just want you to know, your people, referring to the Bible Church of Little Rock, were over the top in their kindness and in their generosity and in their service to us. I mean, what a testimony. That's the sincere giving of thanks when you want to reach out to people in your body and beyond. Is that your heart? Is that what you want to do? Is that, is that what we're known for as the Bible Church of Little Rock? Would to God that if a book were to be written about us, one of the things that would be written about you as an individual or about us as a church, greet the Bible Church of Little Rock. Greet so-and-so for whom I give thanks as well as all the other brothers and sisters who give thanks. What a commendation. What an opportunity we have. Fourth and finally, the principle of sacred service. Sacred service. Shared ministry, selfless sacrifice, sincere thanksgiving, and sacred service. Notice this, the first part of verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. I've already told you. They had developed a house church in Corinth and a house church ultimately in Ephesus. It may have been that they started it, went here to Rome, and then went back to Ephesus when Paul wrote by the time 2 Timothy 4 came around. They were people who were giving up whatever they needed to do to form the body of Christ in their little location. You know, those churches in the first century, probably even up to around the fourth century, didn't have buildings like we have. They had to meet, some of them because of persecution, in small, restricted areas. Some of them were underground. Some of them were in homes where only a few people could meet. Even in a home like this that we presume might have been the part of someone who might have had some level of wealth probably could only seat 70 or 80 people at the most. And he says, greet the church in their house. Wow. They were. They were providing sacred service wherever they went. I mean, they were not only involved in selfless sacrifice, risking their necks for the sake of the gospel that Paul preached, but they were also involved in sacred service. They were giving up that house. I've been in some Christians' homes when you would assume when there are other Christians' kids there and sometimes things are picked up and sometimes things are dropped on the floor and sometimes things are not as tidy when they leave as can be and those Christians as hosts are all frazzled and I've even heard some of them say, we're not going to do that again. And I think to myself, that's not sacred service. Who cares if a knick-knack falls? Who cares if it's broken? Who cares, really? In the grand scheme of things... It's the gospel 
that we're talking about. It's the opportunity for hospitality. It's the opportunity for a church like this in the first century after the folks had been banned as Jewish believers and have now been able to trickle back and they start a house church in Rome. You think they're caring about knickknacks? Do you think they're caring about anything like that? Surely not. They're caring about people. They're caring about lives. It's amazing, this couple and what we can glean from just a couple of verses. You see, you don't have to be anything special in order to be used like this couple. Nothing special at all. I go back to an ordinary man like Tom Carson. Listen to how Don, his son, described him as we close. Tom Carson never rose very far in denominational structures, but hundreds of people in the area and beyond testify how much he loved them. He never wrote a book, but he loved the book. He was never wealthy or powerful, but he kept growing as a Christian. Yesterday's grace was never enough. He was not a far-sighted visionary, but he looked forward to eternity. He was not a gifted administrator, but there is no text that says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you are good administrators. His journals have many, many entries bathed in tears of contrition, but his children and grandchildren remember his laughter. He was not very good at putting people down except on his prayer lists. When he died, there were no crowds outside the hospital, no editorial comments in the papers, no announcements on television, no mention in Parliament, no attention paid by the nation. In his hospital room, there was no one by his bedside. There was only the quiet hiss of oxygen, vainly venting because he had stopped breathing and would never need it again. But on the other side... All the trumpets sounded. Dad won entrance to the only throne room that matters. Not because he was a good man or a great man. He was, after all, a most ordinary pastor. But because he was a forgiven man. And he heard the voice of him who he longed to hear saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Faithful man, humble servant, like Priscilla and Aquila. Let's pray together. Father, would to God that we would be ordinary for Jesus Christ. And would these relationships that are spoken of in the ordinary life of Tom Carson or the life of Priscilla and Aquila be the kinds of relationships and ministry that you would be encouraged by. Lord, I pray that we as individuals and collectively as the Bible Church of Little Rock would emphasize and would Pursue the love relationships among us. 
Lord, we pray that the shared ministry and the selfless sacrifice and the sincere thanksgivings and, Lord, the very sacred service that is represented by this couple and by Tom Carson from our own day be the kind of relationship building that we could do for one another and for you. May we be that kind of church that values the relationships so that when we're away from one another, we can say, greet so-and-so, whom I love in the Lord and who means so much to me. May we be that kind of church, Father, for your glory and for the honor of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.